It was the advent of the second plane, sharking in low over the Statue of Liberty, that was the defining moment. Until then, America thought she was witnessing nothing more serious than the worst aviation disaster in history. Now she had a sense of the fantastic vehemence ranged against her. I have never seen a generically familiar object so transformed by effect. That second plane looked eagerly alive and galvanized with malice and wholly alien. For those thousands in the South Tower, the second plane meant the end of everything. For us, its glint was the world flash of a coming future. Terrorism is a political communication by other means. The message of September 11th ran as follows. America, it is time you learned how implacably you are hated. United Airlines Flight 175 was an intercontinental ballistic missile aimed at her innocence. That innocence, it was here being claimed, was a luxurious and anachronistic delusion. Hello everybody and welcome back to Tales from the Quill and this is episode 5. And those words were written by the late, great Martin Amos, who is the topic of our show today. And I'm joined by the wonderful booktuber Will Chambers to talk about the life and works of Martin Amos. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Hi, Will. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm really pleased you were able to find the time to, uh, to do this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to see you and speak to you. So we're going to talk about Martin Amos, who yes. sadly recently passed away. Uh, just because of part of my research, I will say probably Sir Martin Amos, he was knighted recently, so he does have that as a slight posthumous award added one day before his, I presume for technical reasons, one day before his demise. That's right. He, he, I, he was awarded a knighthood. <laughs> so. I, I, re I read that as well because I'm, I'm sure like it wasn't long before he died. I, I looked him up for some reason. Um, I think it was because I was reading, um, I was rereading, uh, oh my goodness, Lucky Jim by his father. Yes. And for some reason I clicked on and, you know, I looked at him and I'm sure he wasn't Sir Martin Amos. And then when I read, uh, you know, in preparation for this, yeah, they, yeah. they backdated it to a day yeah. before he died. Yeah, yes. so. <laughs> so that's right. Yes, forgive me. Sir Martin <laughs> Louis or Lewis. I don't know how he would have said it. Amos. I, am, I imagine. <laughs> I imagine we'll get into this later, but I imagine from his point of view, he would pronounce it as Louis. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> just something more, slightly more, just more to it <laughs> that way. I but then I suppose he could be Sir Martin Louis Ami. <laughs> so anyway, Will, um, the, the first thing I'd like to know is how did you how did you get to hear of Martin Amos? How, you know, what's 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 the history of your relationship to this uh, interesting author? I've always I got into reading relatively later, uh, serious reading, I would say, in my later teens. And I got the Rachel papers and my first formal introduction to him and I've spoken about this elsewhere, but I think it to be true. I think for some readers, there's like a glorified version of your first, the first book that really gets you. And if it happens in your formative years, 
it's usually the story of an outsider. I just seem to that seems to be the case with everything, whether it's if it's in America, I know the cliche one over there is well, not cliche, the popularized one is probably capturing the rye or something along those lines. And for me, it was a mixture in the same sense of uh, the Rachel papers in 1984, which is I had, I had a full on outsider in 1984. And then I had a weird maximalized literature style of Charles Highway being this teenager you would aspire to, but you probably there were gritty elements to it as well. So you, it, it was it was a very strange and thrilling style to come across for one because it was very even though it's from the 70s, I think it's 73, 74, it's, I think its style maintained itself up until when I read it in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I was just, I was just taken by the character to begin with from there. And that was it. And I weirdly got an introduction to Amos via his partner in crime, uh, Christopher Hitchens as well. Yes, yes. Good friends. Great friends, those two. And it's funny you mention that because I, I probably, uh, sorry, mentioned the time when you, when you first read it back in the early 2000s was actually when I first read it as well but I'm guessing I'm probably older than you so I was already 20 when I read it because I read it in 2000 um, and I read it purely by chance actually I was living uh, I was living in Germany and I visited um, I think it was the bookshop at Frankfurt station there's a tiny English section okay. and they had two books there that I thought I should read and one was Catherine the Rye <laughs> And the other was the Rachel Papers, Rachel Papers by Martin Amis. And I only uh, picked that one up because I had actually just read Lucky Jim for the first time by, by his mm. dad. And it was kind of funny reading those two books, uh, reading those two books together. Um, but, you know, as much as I enjoyed it, I can't say that I became like a, a Martin Amis super fan. <laughs> no, I, I think in part of looking around, not, ju not just the Amis books I've got for information about Martin, and by extension, as you say, Kingsley Amos, which is, we can touch on, which is a very looming shadow that you can't necessarily always escape. But uh, yeah, as I thought from reading around it, it is a very much, this might be a statement people globally listen to, might not understand a very Marmite situation. Mm -hmm. It is very much a love or hate. Or people love, people don't love, people will admire the craft. Because I don't, I don't think there are many people outside of, well, inside, anybody who considers themselves well-read would be able to read Martin Amos and say, technically, this is poor. Mm. I don't think there's very much examples of that in the entire body of Martin Amos's work. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the actual, if you're not on board with this very glamorized, very much the epitome of 80s glamour, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as you get with later books like Money and stuff like that, where there's just this that theme of there's excess there's just excess dialogue excess adjectives excessive verbs <laughs> everything nothing can be described in a sentence and one of my favorite quotes which is what kingsley gives is uh, after reading sections of one of martin's book he says you don't have enough sentences like and they finished their drinks and left <laughs> that's that's the sentence as it should be but instead martin's aim is there'll be a paragraph instead of that one short line but I think that that did really fit in, as you say, with the, like the culture of the time. I mean, the 80s in, uh, I, I, you know, I can't really speak for America, but, you know, it was it was that era of excess, wasn't it? Thatcher's, yeah. Thatcher's Britain, where, you know, everyone's out for themselves kind of thing. And, you know, to, 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 to make money, the whole yuppie culture and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So I think, I mean, of course, I mean, that, that's probably part of the reason or reasons Martin Amos wrote money anyway, I guess.
Yeah. Given yeah. that, you know, the... I, th- I think it was probably that as well, plus the time he spent with uh, Kingsley when Kingsley went to do uh, lecturing in Princeton in America. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably Martin's first eye opener into the to the American I- ideal of there's always aspiration upwards. There's always it's just in the, very much in the American culture from my perspective anyway. That seems mm-hmm. to be the the aspiration is there's always the climb to the top, and that seems yeah. to be that seems to be a point in a lot of Amos's literature where there is a climb out. Uh, but it usually starts much lower down. It usually starts. It usually deals with either the upper class or the working class or social mm-hmm, class, mm-hmm. or social working class moving up a notch or trying to get to the top, and usually in spectacular, <laughs> spectacular failure. Mm, yeah. So uh, let's. I don't know. Let's have have a little look at you know uh, Martin's uh, Martin Amos's early life. Uh, we know he was born what seventy three years ago, yeah. back in nineteen forty nine in Oxford. Uh, and of course, you know, you know his his pedigree. You know, coming from, uh, uh, you know, the the I was say coming from the loins, but that's not really what is it. But coming, coming from it's not it's uh, not wrong. It's not wrong. I, I think Kingsley would admire that description. Yeah, coming from of course Kingsley Amos, who who was a well well thought of and beloved writer in his own right. It's it's a very unique situation where I think outside of this situation of Kingsley and Martin. I don't think I, te- I think you probably find elsewhere in the world of sports where there is a there is a lineage of belonging to a profession and excelling at it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the apple never falls far from the tree. And growing out of that shadow of the same tree, but just the striking number of similarities between their lives as parallels are very. It would it would be you wouldn't believe it if you were reading it in a book yourself, where Martin's born four years after the end of World War Two. Kingsley's born four years after the end of World War One. Their first books received the Somerset Mournham Award. And while looking at this, I was looking around and I was thinking, I wonder who the contemporaries were of Martin for his first book by the time he gets to that. And there are other people around. So Vonnegut has a book in 73. Tony Morrison has a book in 73. But before you even consider who you're competing with in the year you initially first publish, Kingsley Amos has already published 11 novels by that point. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Lucky Jim. <laughs> one of them the following year is shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So I, I, I don't know if I've ever interpreted it as being the maximalist nature of Martin's work is I have to do more than my father. And, mm-hmm. I, have to, and I have to do it better or more, more with more flash. I have to impress him. But obviously, as in the example before, where he says you don't have enough simple sentences or in the example of... Uh, is it the information or London Fields where Martin Amos puts himself in it as a character and he's got his own characters introduction into the book. He really chronicles as Kingsley just at that point, just threw the book across the yeah. room. And I'm not reading it. You're buggering about with it, buggering about with the reader is how I describe it. But yeah, of course, you know, another, another parallel is, you know, sadly they die, they die at the same age. Yes. As well. They were both 73. So yeah. You know. And there's just weird similarities or an inability to escape the life of Kingsley in that mm-hmm. Kingsley had his own touches with uh, Marxism stroke communism, his own political movements moved back and forth very oddly and then obviously Amos's best friend and partner in crime as we said uh, the, the Bette Noirs as you want to call them or whatever mm-hmm. they are, and Christopher Hitchens Christopher Hitchens was a Marxist slash Trotsky so there's, even though Martin didn't do that he's surrounded with 
motifs of his father's life seemingly mm -hmm. constantly throughout his life mm -hmm. so yeah it's a very very interesting upbringing and i can't imagine it's a boring upbringing either because of literary parties literary events you could easily have a friend of your father come round to the house and it's yeah. it's it's philip larkin for example so it's yeah. not again yeah. it's just that world of celebrity must be a unique experience literarily yeah, because I think Philip uh, Philip Larkin composed um, composed a poem uh, to you know inspired by the birth of his sister. Yeah, yeah, uh, Amos's sister. So I mean that's that's really cool. And I mean it doesn't have to, of course, even be a friend of uh, his father because uh, yeah. you know when he's twelve, their parents uh, his parents divorce uh, or split up. I don't know if they did they divorce. Yeah, they divorce. They divorced, and then his uh, father was a very much a womanizer. Like there is no. The up, the, there is no upside to Kingsley's relationship status with anybody. He seemed to be very much in it for himself and gratification wherever he could find it. But for a time, it was a, he was partnered with uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who in herself is a very famous writer. Exactly. So yeah. I've, I've personally only read the Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. But again, that is, I can see where that influence on Martin's life was very impactful because mm -hmm. she pointed him towards the point of view of saying, you're being a bit of a washball, you're just wasting your time. You're not putting any effort into this gift you've got because you're clearly bright and intelligent and gave him his first nudge towards people like Jane Austen, which is strange considering you've got Kingsley Amos as a father. You'd think if there was any literary influence, it would come that direction. But then I suppose that the rebelliousness of teen, being a teen is you wouldn't want anything to do with whatever your father would think was cool or interesting. Well, I, think, so, I think Kingsley even complains at some point that, you know, his son up to like his his mid teenagers is just reading science fiction nonsense that kind yeah. of stuff which uh, he doesn't have much uh, much time for his words not mine because i know a lot of people yeah. who listen to this do love science fiction but well no but it's, it's interesting it's interesting because it's kind of also how martin cut his teeth for one of a better words in the mm -hmm. uh when he was at the new statesman and beforehand when he was working for literary supplementation and stuff like that he was doing reviews of science fiction or hard sci-fi and stuff like that mm -hmm. but then that always intrigued me that Kingsley would frown upon that, given Kingsley's, no, I'm, again, as you say, I'm not disrespecting an area of, or a genre of whatever it is, but uh, Kingsley did genre fiction himself as a writer who contributed under an alias for James Bond novels oh, and stories. Okay, so okay. so it's, it's odd that there would be that type of an almost look down or a sneering upon a category. When it's well, not, hence, hence the alias, probably. Yeah. So. Hence, yeah, hence <laughs> the alias, probably, but not... not yeah, so it's kind of a people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones situation there very much. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, his parents, as we say, divorce. Uh, he, he spends a bit of time in Spain. And, of course, uh, you know, he goes to, is it Menorca or Mallorca? Mallorca, I think. Uh, yeah. And with his mum and, I guess, yeah. his sister. And they stay with none other than Robert Graves, yeah. which is, again, a fantastic and, uh, you know, really uh, remarkable uh literary figure to be hanging out with indeed and i haven't personally got much experience with robert graves i've tried to read i claudius oh. <laughs> I, I know there's a whole series there and i imagine other people could probably speak <laughs> better to robert graves but yeah it seems to there seems to be an inescapability from the world of the literati mm. in some form or another it just seems that you can't get away from it no, no, definitely not. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know much uh, more about his his uh, early life and his childhood. Uh, I mean, obviously, 
yeah, he went to schools and things, didn't he? He he did. He he was when I was reading into it, he's a very he wasn't a very promising student from accounts that were given. However, um, one of the things um, I'm going to forget the author's name if I have it as a reference. Um, there is a author, a crime writer who took issue <laughs> took issue with him, which is oh, I'm not going to be able to find it. Now. Oh, sorry, Peter James. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, at some point, the promise of Martin Amos as a student got to a point where he was able to go to a, an Oxford crammer, as it's uh-huh. called, in order to say this is this is this is your way in. If you can get the results here, you can do it. And apparently at some later in life literary event, the author Peter James bumps into Martin and says, Martin, it's me, Peter James. We were at the same Oxford Crammer to try and get in. And I don't know why, but just cuttingly, Martin, <laughs> the quote as it goes is, um, uh, no, I don't remember you and you only remember me because I'm famous. <laughs> so, off the cuff there, not the most warm and welcoming <laughs> type of response you get from somebody you were at school with but i i think that plays into the character of martin as a character which i I imagine is probably a defensive mechanism whereby if constant pressure is put on you as well you're the son of kingsley amos a greatness must just happen you'd almost have to take take on board that type of persona of being very nonchalant or irreverent and not caring so yeah i think there's a very strong impulse there to to be mean to look cool very oddly i think there's a touch of kingsley in that as well though maybe yeah uh for what i've known i mean i can't remember the 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 book um and i think i think martin writes the forward to it or the introduction to it um and it's it's kingsley amos's book on english on the english language Oh, the king's english yeah the king's english that's right and you know, he's ter- a terrible, terrible stop in that. Yeah. You know, the stuff it, he says is really I, rude. Like, I, think a part, I think it's either in that book or it's around the same type of category where there's a, uh, a moment where I can't remember if it was either Kingsley or Amos was reading something, but they're in the same room. And one points out to the other that there's a technical error because this person is referred to this wooden cabin as being dilapidated. And, one of, and Kingsley <laughs> says, well, that's incorrect because... The, the word lapis in the word dilapidated is in Latin stone. So you'd only ever have a stone building would only be dilapidated, not that. And it is, that was the world they functioned in was this, everything's precise. There's, even though there's an excess of words, the words aren't wastefully incorrect. No, no. I mean, it, yeah, it, I mean, it must have been fascinating, really. Yes. Uh, but then also, I suppose, could have been to some degree damaging as well maybe yeah <laughs> you know. well it's it's that it's that thing as well where i think uh there's a description i think christopher hitchens gives of their original meeting from his memoir where he talks about uh the fact that he perceived and the look of martin at the time was very much in this uh, in his early years of breaking out onto the scene is this the mick jagger look of uh <laughs> of the literary <laughs> world this very pouty expression somewhat good looking in an unusual way for somebody who's a writer i suppose because it it's not exactly the most glamorous lifestyle but they were there causing a fuss here there and everywhere saying outlandish things and yes but it's it's trouble troublesome <laughs> he, he arrived in a lot of trouble over his life martin for things he had written and said 
So he gets into Oxford and he actually graduates with a first, which is with a viva, as he describes it. Which a is, viva, I think, indeed. Which is, uh, <laughs> I think he describes it as being the type of the type of score or grade you receive where they invite you in and then compliment you on how how much they enjoyed reading what you said. Not yeah. just that it was very good, but it was it was a pleasure to read your work, <laughs> which I think is also the autobiographical element that slips into the Rachel papers as well, where the character Charles Highway is very, is obviously going into Oxford, is obviously going to do this. And mm -hmm. I think there are scenes in there where he's put in his place by a tutor who says, you, you're going off on weird highbrow tangents that make no sense here whatsoever. You need to rein it in a bit. Mm. <laughs> and is it, um, is it, you know, is, is his relationship with Kingsley, does it, does it come out in in any of his other works as far as you know because i don't remember I, but I, it's so long ago i don't remember i don't think there's much at all in terms of parental interaction in the in the there's rachel very, papers there's very little in the rachel papers um and then throughout the rest of the work i'd say the same actually a lot of the characters are very solitary characters anyway or if by a push they do have a family they're self-removed almost from their immediate family anyway so mm -hmm. i don't think it never feels like there's very much patriarchal mm -hmm. input from another character within the book they're already self they're already well-formed characters are already in the world they occupy so i think the closest familiarly probably would be in something like the information where the main character is is married mm -hmm. but it's obviously mm -hmm. that's about Again, that's probably an autobiographical account of one writer trying to destroy another writer's career, and it's not going right whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And you know, as as you mentioned, uh, or as we've mentioned already, you know that uh, he he claimed to be uh, influenced uh, in his uh, when when he kind of discovers literature, as it were, by uh, by his stepmother, and and uh, particularly as she introduces him to Jane Austen. Is that seen anywhere in his works? Would you say again? I, I don't think so. I don't see anything that would reference the unless the character is, has something to do with literature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Outside of that, there's not much that goes into it. Seems everything seems quite removed from the world of literature itself, mm -hmm. especially in the works of fiction. Where even our push, I think it said in the end of uh, Money, John Self, the character in there, he he imagined in an interview he said like, "Where's John Self now?" If if the book finished and it was during the time when there was a BBC adaptation of the TV show with uh, Nick Frost playing the titular character from mm -hmm, the book. Mm -hmm. uh, was saying like where do you see him and I said oh maybe he's got a few maybe he's got a few slightly more long form magazines on a coffee table somewhere mm -hmm. and every now and then he might he might think to open a book but that's it that's as far as it tends to go <laughs> so yeah it's it's very interesting that he I don't think there was a level of poverty to his life growing up because there was but I, I imagine there was affluence when the times were good the times mm -hmm. were good mm -hmm. and then there were times when it just wasn't as good but i don't think it ever seemed to be bad it was his, yeah, I mean, I, and this this is probably unfair because i have no real basis of saying it unless i've been kind of subliminally subliminally can't even say it influenced by you know, 23 years ago, whatever, reading reading his memoir experience. But I do get the impression that it might have been in some ways a kind of perhaps neglect a little bit yeah. in, in the way that, you know, very academic, very intelligent people tend to be that they might actually not 
intentionally, but this kind of neglect of their offspring is yeah, it were, a little bit. It's you know. very much a bohemian yeah. aspect of their lifestyle, which makes sense if there are constant people to see, parties to go to, people to rub shoulders with, and things along those lines. But yeah. I don't know if that necessarily translated into Martin later on in his own life with his own children. That seems I know he has a a daughter who he wasn't aware of for the longest time until she came out of the woodwork late, much later down the line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he seems to have been he seems to have unfavorably throughout, it, just unfortunately for him, been given this there's a yardstick already ahead of you in your life from from the beginning, even when from when you're a child, because it's I think there's always some expectation there that if you show any literary prowess and your parent is a literary or growing as a literary giant, mm-hmm. then there's there's going to be that thing there of the weight of expectation is just constantly upon you. Mm. Yeah, it must it must be difficult, and you know having to, as you say, live up to that kind of thing as well, especially when you follow in that you know parents' yeah. footsteps, uh, because I'm sure you know uh, as you said earlier, maybe in the world of sport and things, but we know even from the world of sport there are a lot of sons who fail to you know yeah. massively fail to emulate their fathers maybe they're decent you know if we take football for example they're decent enough they get to be professional but they're playing in like you know league three or something yeah. i can't remember now all the leagues whereas <laughs> their dad played for manchester united for example yeah right? yeah um i guess i've seen it a bit i suppose in in, in rugby you can see that with uh uh i don't know if you follow rugby at all but with like uh, owen know. farrell of course his father was a was a fairly you know decent player also played for England and stuff so you know you, you can see it and, and in literature I don't know I, I can't think of too many occasions where the son outshone the father no and I think I think usually the, the familial aspect would be siblings it's like most famously yeah. would have they'd be the Bronte sisters and Branwell by extension but even then if you weighed it up there's not there's there's the most famous Bronte sister versus the secondary and third. Oh, mm. I know it's personal taste involved as well, but it's usually like Jane Eyre would come to the foreground first to people instead of like the tenant of uh, Wildfell Hall or something like mm. that. So mm. there are those aspects to it there where, again, I think it seems unfortunate that his own first book, though, in my opinion, a good one, maybe rose tinted glasses there because it was my initial exposure to it, doesn't. If we're doing a one book at a time, weight versus weight of father versus son. I think you'd be hard pressed to, I'd be hard pressed to put something necessarily, maybe equal to Lucky Jim, but not greater than it, mm. potentially. Or even later on in life with the old, de- the old Devils, which does win the Booker Prize. So that shows that there's this beginning of career, end of career, there's an award, there's an award, and it's quite a big award. And Martin was shot shortlisted i think for times arrow when it came out and then long listed for i think it was yellow dog mm-hmm. i think so but he never made it that type of thing but i think given the amount of times their careers went by that kind of time it, you could almost think in martin's mind he'd be thinking i've got a good body of work behind me now at this point at some point <laughs> i'm going to be under consideration for this award and if i win it i at least equal my father and then I don't know. I am, I imagine the only remit he would have would be to say, have the people from the Nobel knock on his door and <laughs> give, give him something that would allow him to fully just step out from it. But even then, he can never step out from anybody's autobiographical uh, 
sentence around him or biography sentence around him of Martin Amos very quickly followed in brackets son of Kingsley Amos yeah will, will yeah. forever haunt him so he can he can never appear in his own sentence it seems without reference to his father just just there but I think that will that will probably decrease over time and I guess you know to the there must be part of the thing that like maybe from a commercial point of view mm. uh he's maybe more successful I don't know. I don't know how wealthy King's Amos was when he died. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it's a long time ago. You know, he died in 1995. And I doubt he's read that much by anyone other than, you know, middle-aged people who read him 20 years ago who are rereading him again. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it may may not be. But there's, there's an interestingness with that where I think Lucky Jim, especially being the book it is, is in things like the Penguin Essentials line as one of those classic British campus novel, in fairness. So it's set within, it's a specific, it's like a subset type of genre, a campus novel, but still it's in, it's in the zeitgeist more so than anything else. Whereas I think apart from the occasional infamy of Martin Amos occurring now and then and his books mm. spiking or chopping in terms of popularity, I don't think, unless given the test of time, because obviously it, he only died incredibly recently. Mm. Uh, given some longevity, I don't know if any of his books would make it into an equivalent publishing houses. This is our canon of modern, classic modern literature that you should read. I feel like that that in itself has buys Kingsley a lot of time to constantly be something that newer generations will discover, Lucky Jim, and then they might branch out into his other works and stuff like that. And like in my own personal aspiration, I have a personal interest in uh, the Angry Young Men movement from Kingsley Amos, which was him, uh, John Brain, and a few others, and Keith Waterhouse with Billy Liar. And again, each of those authors seem to have one type, one book that had a successful film, had maybe had a sequel film, had a sequel to its mm-hmm. own book, stage play adaptations were made of, and stuff like that. And because I think because of the excess of Amos's work, apart from Money, which has been done as a BBC adaptation, and done quite well i think it's very hard to capture martin's work mm. in any other medium so if it, if it doesn't if it doesn't live in the body of the canon outside of that i think it i think it will wane over time that's true because they, they tried to fill they did film uh, rachel papers in there and it wasn't it yeah. was it, it yeah it, it reminded me of like a slightly more lewd version of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, basically. <laughs> but it, it didn't necessarily work. They've adapted Night Train, even though that went into a different, that went under a different title. They adapted Dead Babies, which had a Paul Bettany as a star of it. So his films mm-hmm. have attracted adaptation and been mm-hmm. well casted. But it always seems that similar to his literature, it's not. It doesn't always land fully with the audience as the ex- as he would probably expect it to. But then I know from criticism of, uh, I think it was Yellow Dog was probably Martin's most critically panned book universally. Mm-hmm. Apart from saying, again, the thing of technically, there's no there's no sentence errors here as far as we can tell. All the punctuation and grammar is correct. But just nobody seemed to like it <laughs> whatsoever. Mm-hmm. To the point of, I think it was a very harsh and apologies readers because it's a, <laughs> a listener should i say because this is an, a little bit explicit but i remember one critic said something like he was ashamed to read it on the ch- on the tube in london 
for fear of somebody looking at you with the same look somebody would give having heard or seen that your uncle was flashing children at a primary school gate. So the, I mean, there was something weird like being caught in a masturbatory inst instance of, of something very just crass. And I thought like, even at, it's, even at your most dislike of something, I can still always appreciate the craft behind something. But I would never, mm -hmm. very rarely do I ever read something and think that, have I ever gone to that type of length of disliking it? But then there was one quote I saw from Goodreads, which was um, somebody said, this is the the worst book from a one of the best novelists. So I, I think there is that element there of not only is it very hit and miss for people, but when it's a miss, it can be a very large miss. I think there's something similar a little bit there with, although I suppose he, he is a good, I don't know, maybe 15 years. He's Let's say he falls between uh, Kingsley, Amos and, and Martin uh, is J.G. Ballard. Uh, you know, where he did write some really weird stuff. You know, I, yeah. I personally think a great, you know, author and I really enjoyed a lot of his work. But then he produces something like Crash, for example, which is, you know, weird. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if it's just something in the in the air during during those days, as it were, the, 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 that kind of era between between the two. I've not read much Ballad, but I know I know of Crash. And I know, like you say, in terms of I know it for its weirdness. And I feel like if you're just people might get into the rest of your body of work through through that instance of weirdness, but I feel like that's probably the same angle with Martin as it will be, where he has throughout his throughout his career, especially in fiction, this very odd and he's been criticised for it, an odd fixation with the Holocaust and with mm -hmm. Nazi Germany and with the Gulag and mm -hmm. that side of the USSR and the Eastern Bloc and things like that, and it's this. It seems to be a compulsion to tread where he probably shouldn't, mm. Mm. or he's criticised for not having necessarily the same right to tread there, which I think is an interesting angle. Because in fairness, literature should be an open, open playing field for anybody to do anything and experiment anywhere. So, like with Times Arrow, it deals with the concentration camps and horrific scenes due to the structure of the book being a time going backwards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the evil Nazi doctors are healing Jews and feeding them and they're getting fatter and they're getting more prosperous as the book mm -hmm, goes on. Mm -hmm. So there is this, you are put very uncomfortably a lot of the time into a circumstance. And for me, I've always thought because of outside of Kingsley, Martin's other avenues were Saul Bellow, who I've only read bits of, I've never read it in full books. But then also Nabokov sits as like another pillar. And it's hard to escape that same type of positional feeling of, say, Nabokov's Lolita, where you are put mm -hmm. into this position where you are being tricked and you know you are being tricked and it's uncomfortable to sympathize with somebody you know is a moral monster. And yet your heartstrings are being tugged. You're, all, yeah. you're, almost, you're almost feel like you're, I could be friends with this person almost. And it's very strange... Situation. It's a tough then, read. It's a yeah. tough read, definitely. But then there's like a, almost like a maxim from Nabokov, which is uh, his thing was to chase his protagonists up a tree, and then continue to throw stones at them. I think <laughs> I think is the expression is to just constantly give them a hard time and never let up with this torturous existence that occurs. Mm. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like in those aspects of anything to do with uh, Nazism or even the extremes of communism. There is this, you are put in a very odd place. And then 
from the communist side of it, it looked a bit of a rift, not a rift. I would say it was a it was a comedic spat in the in publications between Hitchens and Amos over Martin deciding, seemingly from left field, as far as I could tell, to decide to produce a non-fiction book called Cobra the Dread, dealing with Stalin and how things were in the gulags and stuff like that. It seemed it seemed provocative, deliberately provocative. Mm. It seemed like between him and and Hitchens, there seems to be a lot of stance taking to say the thing you shouldn't say, to then almost almost basically look around at the rest of the room and ask what you're going kind to do about it. Kind of one-upmanship, see yeah. how far they could go. Yeah, because another one of Martin's things was uh, in one of his articles where he talked about uh, there should be euthanasia boots on booths on the corner <laughs> of streets and obviously the aging population, we should just do away with them and just <laughs> then that's it. And you have to think, you have to wonder why why would you do that? And then there are things where, like his time in America when he's very young, he emigrates to America in later life anyway and leaves the UK, which is almost, as somebody who can't do right for doing wrong in the British media, he's seen as basically a traitor, you're leaving, you go to America, so can't win there either. But I think this connection to America led to the the upset his remarks in later life caused mm. following 9-11 because obviously he wrote a lengthy article called uh, The Second Plane and it's very, it's beautifully worded talking about a tragedy again but then again it's, it's not necessarily something that has anything to do with him it's an, it's an American tragedy even though he feels this connection to America but he speaks very forthrightly on it and then he has questionable to outright remarks regarding Islamophobia mm-hmm. where this is anybody who looks a certain way you should be suspicious of and stuff like that and even though those, those might genuinely have been real feelings he was feeling in this very heightened time of awareness and again judging people by the way they look and stuff like that which mm-hmm. is ironic given his work thinking around the topic of concentration camps and the gulag so he he's already written about what it's like to be somebody in a position who has been rounded up because of who, just who they happen to be, an inalienable characteristic, and made them a position of sympathy within the story. But then outside of that, there's this weird liminal space where he can't seem to make that connection back to himself, that he's mm-hmm. doing the exact same thing in the British press to a massive audience, because it's not that he's a crackpot to the side of whatever, just espousing some nonsense. It is that type of thing where anything he would say would make maybe in itself a headline or produce commentary thereon. Mm. So one of my f- favorite Guardian articles, which I go back to every now and then because it just tickles me, is uh, Christopher Morris, if, you're, if you remember him. The, he did mm-hmm. Brass Eye in the yeah. day-to-day. And he That's did four, right, yeah, yeah. Four, four Lions recently. <laughs> he, he, wrote, he wrote an article being critical of Martin Ames because he said in his research on Islam and terrorism, he just can't get away from Martin Amos and Christopher Hitchens constantly popping up, espousing nonsense and just muddying the water so it is it's it is unfo- it's almost unfortunate but then i've always been in a position of thinking do you have to treat the art as a separate thing from the artist mm. which, oh, is well, difficult, think... which is difficult to do with non-fiction because that is just you saying that is just your voice then even mm. though it's still your voice mm. within fiction you mm. at least have the, the setting and the context and the the mise-en-scene or whatever it'd be or if it's like time's arrow you're doing it in a structured way, so there's like a, what's the term, uh, to borrow another term from cinema, uh, fabula, fabulae and souce, 
So you're uh-huh. dealing with non-chronological storytelling. So there are, there are gimmicks around it. But yeah, when you're outright just saying horrible things, like in your previous episode dealing with Lovecraft, Lovecraft was very anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. Anti-everybody. Anti-everybody. <laughs> and it might be, that might be the case for Martin Amos, really. But if, if you weren't in his crowd, you were, you were on the outside. But, but then, then you also mentioned earlier that, that there may have been some form of just persona or character that he created as well, which, you know, maybe if you did meet him by yeah. off chance and you didn't let on that you knew who he was and you got chatting at a bar, he may well have been perfectly normal and pleasant. That's it, because obviously a very close friend of his and that circle is uh, Salman Rushdie, who obviously yeah. famously went into hiding for so many years because of the fatwa mm-hmm. that was put upon him. So he's got that connection there to the same world again, where he's sympathetic with his person. But yeah. Again, but he's by default taking a, an against position because of the extremity of the fatwa. Mm-hmm. So there is there is that there. So he's not like historically he's not been on that side of not liking that monolith of religion in in any sense. But then also, you, yeah, you just have to wonder if it's. Well, like, I mean, so he had a lot there. to say. He had a lot to say on agnosticism, and I mean that's no surprise again, seeing as his friends are Christopher Hitchens, because yeah. uh, we all know his book uh, was it God God is not great. Yeah. Um. You know, so I guess it's to do a lot with the the company he he kept i guess we'll, cu- we'll come back to that in a bit uh, it's funny when you mentioned uh well not funny but uh you mentioned <laughs> the euthanasia um cubicles yeah um that for some reason i want to say that takes me back to vonnegut and i don't i, I think it's vonnegut or it might have been philip k dick but I, i'm hoping it's vonnegut because that fits in when you mentioned vonnegut earlier yeah. was he wrote a short story where this is a feature uh oh, right, so okay. it's kind of interesting that um that he said that uh, I mean, it could be because, like I say, when I was looking at when the Rachel Papers was released and what was released at the same year, uh, Breakfast of Champions is one of the books that's that's released in the same year. So you're you're in that market space. So even though across the pond, your contemporaries at that time are you are yeah. competing for the money in somebody's pocket against people like Kurt Vonnegut or whoever it might be. Uh, so, yeah. And um, I was going to mention something else, but I think I've forgotten. Um, so. <laughs> uh, so he, as we know, he finishes Oxford, he goes off, he gets a job at the, ti- the TLS, Times Literary yes. Supplement, and then on to become editor, lit- literary editor of the New Statesman, which, of course, is where I think, which is where he meets, uh, no, he meets, yeah, he meets Hitchens there, that's right. Yeah. And he also writes features and things for uh, The Observer. Yeah. Um, we mentioned the Rachel Papers during the 70s, early 80s, he publishes four, four, four books, something like that. Rachel Papers, Dead Baby. Yeah, Babies. it's a very, it's a very, because when I was trying to quantify it as well and breaking it down, so in the 70s, he has three publications, mm-hmm. and then in the 80s, he has seven, the 90s, he has seven, and then there's a slowing down in the noughties of six in the, I'm not sure what the last decade is called, is it called the tens? Are we in the tens when it's 2010 to 2019? Tweenies, isn't it? The tweenies, yeah, is that what they call the it? He has five, <laughs> and then obviously cut short at the moment with one of his, uh, or with his actually with his longest work, the Inside Story in the uh, in the twenties. Mm, so th- mm. there is this, there's a steady output of work, and I think looking at it, and then also looking at things like the number of pages per those books as well, it's interesting the format it takes. Where, like you say, he cuts his teeth in journalism with science fiction reviews mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he then he then moves in those types of circles as an aside very fortunate to start your career at the times literary supplement 
I can only assume that might be the name carries some weight with it there and stuff like that. Sure so, it does. Sure yeah, it did, other, other, he's not starting at a local newspaper level <laughs> no. and working his way up to something. So <laughs> there is there is the, the silver spoon is constantly, instead of Damocles' sword above, there's the silver spoon dangling above, I think is the thing that cuts both ways. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's uh, a few small novella-sized pieces of work to begin with. And then... I don't own the other two collections because I think I knew this subconsciously, but I never delved into it. There were some short, usually you'd expect it to go maybe a novella or short stories kind of simultaneously. But the short story collections seem to appear later on in his bibliography. And the volume of them, when you read it as a list of bibliography, looks mm -hmm. to be quite a bit. However, uh, there are duplications going on there with, uh, which one is it now? So two stories is actually just a reprint as is God's Dice. And those stories are taken from Einstein's monsters and heavy water and other stories. So there is this aspect there of, it appears that there's more to the body of work than there is in fairness. Mm -hmm. Those just, mm -hmm. just, just got book treatments because it's Martin Amis. So, and again, he managed to sneak into something like, so in fairness, I will retract my previous statement about Lucky Jim being a Penguin Essentials because God's Dice did make it into the Penguin 60s collection box set where every anniversary penguin release a and <laughs> at this rate an ever-growing collection you might see it over oh, mirroring on the thing the penguin mm -hmm. little black classics at 80 collection there oh, okay yeah so yeah. he's made it into the 60s one so he does have i will give him that those short stories made it into a canon style body that will constantly be referred back to in penguins publication history well, yeah. actually, I mean, even I, I was just looking at uh, money itself was actually included in, in, in the Times' uh, uh, 100 best English language novels. Yeah. So, you know, it's something I don't know. I, I'm, I'm guessing Lucky Jim may have been in there as well, but I, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but so definitely the 80s and 90s are his most, you know, uh, successful decades, biggest definitely. output. Uh, and that kind of thing. And then in, uh, you know, he has, a, I guess... Uh, Big thing, I suppose, that kind of must have been strange, you know, having having a larger than life fat father figure, I suppose. You know, King's name has passes away in 1995, and do you see any change, any impact? I, I, I don't believe that. If it's there, it's subtle. If not, maybe mm -hmm. in, in in like a what's the word for the bit at the beginning of books. And either the dedication, preface. maybe, or yeah, or if if there's a preface or a dedication or uh -huh. something, uh, is it an epigraph, epigram, uh -huh. something like that that might be referential around there. But yeah, from that point on, you're dealing with the information preceded the death of his father, which is about rival authors. So that doesn't seem to be anything to do with it. Night Train is a murder mystery of sorts. Mm. Yellow Dog has a more surreal story to it. House of Meetings, he goes back to the Holocaust again. So nothing in the fiction seems to touch upon sudden fatherlessness. fatherlessness. But he does. But it does. It does spur him into starting to write his his memoir, though. Yeah, because uh, I believe which... he starts it after the death of, of yeah. uh, Kingsley, and then it's published, of course, in two thousand. Yeah, but even in that, it seems to, it, it experience is very father centric and stuff like that. But again, to go back to like at the beginning, where you wouldn't believe this life if it was written down. He also talks about things with um, his cousin Lucy, who was abducted and went missing for a period of time, who it transpired was the victim of uh, Fred West, mm -hmm. who, for those that don't know her, was a 
is, isn't i won't say famous because i really the term famous does an injustice to people who are horrible he was infamous. an infamous infamous yeah. uh, serial killer through well, i'm not sure what the time scale was there but it, it crossed at least a decade i suppose oh i, I think it was i mean it was it fred and rosemary west i think yeah. were probably killing from the 70s up to yeah so as far know, as he knows early 90s there's, there's, yeah. so you've got to imagine there's this whirlwind lifestyle that's happening there's the disappearance of a relative completely mm -hmm. who then transpires to have been murdered in one of the worst ways you could imagine it's not just a missing person who i'm not saying this isn't terrible but accidentally fell into a canal or something like that and mm -hmm. that's why they disappeared mm -hmm. so it was a very different circumstance again where that just feels like tragedy has just happened but then i'm not sure necessarily that that presents itself in in the stories necessarily mm. so, no i mean well, the thing is we wouldn't know i suppose because yeah you know she went missing uh oh, i don't know she was yeah 20 something wasn't she's quite yeah so i mean he, he probably didn't have a large enough body of work behind him yeah to just for us to notice any effect that that kind of loss and also the fact he wouldn't have known at least until when when were the west discovered mid 90s i think if yeah. i remember right because i remember obviously the news and it was one of those things where you know we'd be like what having it live and then yeah. you'd be, they found another one because they were like digging up the the, the garden and stuff but you know um so he's kind of again already established so he wouldn't have known that she was no. dead just disappeared i suppose yeah. uh until until he's you know well into well into adulthood yeah lucy partington 20 21 years oh, old yeah. she was when she uh went missing um so yeah and then in 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 the 2000s uh oh yeah that that's what i was gonna say i have remembered it's, oh, it's yeah. funny when because he, he he then because uh, he he gets married of course and also divorced and yeah. married and has a few other liaisons and, and and things on the side but his his uh wife isabel is it isabel, isabel Fonseca? Fonseca. Yeah. um that's probably a catalyst for him to actually move to america i suppose i think he spent yes. some time in in uruguay which yeah. Fonseca has some some link to yeah uh, and then he moves off to america and of course that again it's funny because that you know his his great friend Hitch, the Hitch, is also, I believe, living in America. At the same time, yeah, very famously. At the same time, very, very famously, he, yeah, it was this thing of, I don't know what it was about that. I don't know about the a greater extended circle of friends, but obviously that mm. is there to be explored. That the idea, the idea, almost even in later life, it seems, or much further down his life as an adult, is that the place to then be is in America because. I, I don't know if it's down to Martin feeling that his, t his time or what there is to explore within the English literary scene is done. But then also, he's publicly better well received in America for being a literary icon. He, and he's not going to receive the same condemnations because there was obviously, uh, there have been a few, there was a publication scandal with the information where very famously he received a ridiculous some upfront of half a million pounds. Yes, <laughs> which which rank which rankled everybody, I think, and I think that news probably made its way throughout the entire public public publishing world, which was just an. Ex there may have been larger sums of money, I imagine, exchanged hands with other authors of greater renown, mm. but those probably didn't have scandal. <laughs> the sound of scandal behind them 
So we might not know about those, but yeah, that received a lot of trouble. He had a constant ongoing thing throughout his life with the quality of his teeth and having te teeth issues that constantly made its way into the press. Where any money he would spend on his teeth to try and correct the issue would also be commented upon. So again, he's kind of... Which press is that? The American press? Uh, the, the British press. The British. Quite. You see, that's funny because the Americans are always going on about the state yeah. of British people's teeth. So I would have but thought that, it was them. But well, that that might be part of why he wanted to have it corrected. But then also, yeah. I feel like that type of self improvement of getting your teeth corrected and fixed mm -hmm. is re is received better in America because I feel like there's there's more acceptance there of surgery or things along those lines or whatever yeah. it is. So I feel like that's to do there. But yeah, and then obviously when he's a little bit more down the road of being a senior novelist, there came around another comparatively low-level scandal, but it got to that type of proportion where, um, not far away from where I work, uh, Manchester Metropolitan University hired him as a guest lecturer for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And it transpired that for the very, very small number of hours he was doing the fee was astronomical, which obviously, rather than just them saying, and he was paid this much for the year, mm -hmm. it was £80,000 he got for the year. So, which, if you're bringing in an A, from your position, an A-lister, mm -hmm. is probably not worthy of commentary. But mm -hmm. then obviously other academic staff spoke unofficially saying that obviously this led to Martin Ames coming in receiving £3,000 an hour only for... Yeah. So so many hours of le guest lecturing every now and then, and fielding some Q and A's with students here and there. So that just automatically. I, I don't know if if the case was that was somebody else of a similar stature mm. within within literature. I don't I don't know if they would have been treated the same. I don't know if that would have happened to the same renown. But I think because being the bad boy, in air quotes, uh, just carries with it this thing of when whenever you do something that could be flipped or scrutinized is flipped and scrutinized into something else because as we all know that there, there are lecture circuits that go in all the time where people of renown or fame will tour places yeah whatever it might be or get in a lecture circuit it's not I mean, the, only time, the only well the only time i hear it spoken of in in vitriolic terms is usually when it's a former prime minister yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh you know when people hear that you know tony blair earned you know, three million pounds last year from the lecture circuit. People think, yeah. well, oh, or especially, of course, now with with Boris, yeah. uh, you know, people think, Jesus. Uh, but I think, I guess it's, you know, if it had been another field, if it had been a sporting field or a or yeah. a, a entertainment field, people don't bat an eyelid. But I think because academia is so famously poorly paid, yeah, uh, that you know, it gets people's. Uh, uh, backs up thinking that these universities who can't really afford to pay their staff a, a good can, wage can, can have the money to throw it yeah throw it uh, authors to pop in two or three times yeah. a year and, and do something but but yeah. he actually is also I mean he, you know you mentioned guest lecturing there but he's 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 lecturing uh in, in this uh yeah in the states as well is he or just yeah just in, he, he yeah. does do some lecturing work over there which you would expect because outside of if you're not writing if you're not producing a body, furthering your body of work with more output, you're apart from royalties. I imagine you're not earning any money because there's no there's no advance from a new publication or whatever it might be. And yeah, especially with with the scandal around the information, which uh, for for <laughs> for listeners will appreciate this. If you are particularly obsessed 
obsessed might be the wrong word, but a little bit true for myself with Martin Amos, and you collect a body of work from somebody, you also like it to look the same way. And I had collected the vintage collection of Martin Amos, and it all looked very nice and uniform. And then you get there from, I think it's Flamingo, uh, <laughs> this ugly looking version of the information which does not blend in well whatsoever. So there is this thing, so even from myself, I am visually reminded that that was Martin Amos portraying, from the, from the outside point of view, portraying his, his publishing agent and going with this other person to receive an obscene amount of money. Mm. But then he needed an obscene amount of money for his life and to fix his teeth. So it all comes well, back it. to this ad hominem name calling where you have bad <laughs> teeth and you can't help it. <laughs> I was just reading about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, but, you know, he did. It's not that bad. Is that he ran postgraduate seminars, did four public events a year, plus a two-week summer school. Yeah. Which for someone, I mean, it'd be like, you know, if you were to get any, I mean, imagine if you were to try and get someone like Stephen King to do that. Of course, yeah. it's a different level, but it would cost you yeah. millions, you yeah. know. Uh, so it's not it's not too bad. But I do like uh, what he said of it, though. Um <laughs> I don't know if you'd seen the quotation where he says, I may be acerbic in how I write, but I would find it very difficult to say cruel things to students in such a vulnerable position. I imagine I'll be surprisingly sweet and gentle with them. And he said that the experience might inspire him to write a new book where he sardonically responds, a campus novel written by an elderly novelist. <laughs> That's what the world wants. <laughs> so it's a pretty, pretty nice shootout, to, shout out, shootout, whatever you want to yeah. say to his dad there, I guess. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's yeah, he's he he's he's an interesting guy. It's funny. I was looking at the pictures. They do look alike as well. I mean, they you do. can you can see that it's his. It's definitely uh, they're they're definitely related. Yeah. Oh uh, dear. So we haven't touched too much on his uh, on his uh, on his personal life. We mentioned the fact he was married, divorced, married again, um, and he had uh, two daughters. He had two sons, didn't he? And then yeah, two daughters. He's, he's got two sons, two daughters, and then I think he's got five children in total. So two yeah. two two from different rela formal relationships. Yeah. And then, as we mentioned, a daughter that appeared later on out of the woodwork of a liaison that. He didn't know there was anything else to Yeah, back in 1976. Yeah, yeah. parentally follow up on. But then obviously yeah. with some stuff as well, there is the element of uh, like in the non-fiction collection, visiting Mrs. Nabokov. There, there are these things where he's also in his personal life very much present in the lives of other literary giants of the time with like Saul Bellow and Vladimir Nabokov and Philip Larkin. And it's... I don't know if that's the the influence of the age range of Kingsley, potentially, where even though there's no father figures in the work, so to speak, apart from until we get to experience, he does seem drawn to father figures literarily elsewhere outside of his father, which is, I think, a, a very strange thing because you'd think if he was going to seek that and he, didn't, he, he wouldn't want to mirror the literary element of it, but it seems to be something you can't get away from. Mm. And and then visiting uh, in the in the art essay, visiting Mr. Nabokov, there they lived in a hotel famously for quite quite a lot of years. And even after Vladimir Nabokov dies, his wife remains living there. And the essay is about him visiting her. And it's just interesting that he's got very personal connections outside 
which doesn't seem to gel with the impersonal, like I say, acerbic persona mm-hmm. publicly mm-hmm. in the press and in the works. Mm-hmm. Everything does, nothing feels very personal in the works. Everything feels very removed of, even from the Rachel papers onwards, it's a very solitary character or in like a, which was, I think it was other people was one where the main female character in that just comes to you from a coma and is very, is trying to explore her life and put it back together again. But it, it doesn't seem to be of a, a familial connection or it's about something that's lost or trying to get back to, but you always start off in a very solitary place, but then outside of it, you get this, you get to peel back the layers and see he's actually quite sensitive to, from any other point of view, would be visiting an old lady mm. who he doesn't have to visit anymore, but the gift of what, Vladimir Nabokov did for him. Mm-hmm. He's reciprocating later on and still visiting and things like that. And I just think it's very interesting that thing of. I think he has a. I think he has some personal effects of Saul Bellow because of the relationship that it was. I think he has Saul Bellow's leather jacket. I think is uh, one of the things he has. So there are these very intimate connection points. Well, I think in one I read somewhere in one one of his books where he's critically slammed a little bit and it, it's got something to do with Saul Bellow I think but his widow Mrs Bellow comes to like defend him and stuff in yeah. in writing and, and things so yeah I mean he it, it, it's very complicated I guess really his 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 relationships with, with all of these people um as, as, I, as, I, think, as I, think, I think maybe because his profile is as high as it is and mm. his life's so public that might be why there's not very much, or at least from my point of view, obviously I don't know about every aspect of his life and every facet, mm. but it seems like that's why his work might be as impersonal as it is because mm-hmm. this is already treaded, treaded out everywhere constantly. Any wrong step is a misstep and will receive some type of coverage, not even in the back of the newspaper. It's not, it's not like, it, that's the thing I think with Martin Amos, he wasn't, commentary around him wasn't just limited to the literary section of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. He, it would be an article about Martin Amos and it would be treating him like he was a celebrity of any other type of stature, like a, not in a gossipy way or like in the gossip pages, but it would be an article separate from the book section in a newspaper mm-hmm. or a magazine. So he has, he has transcended the literati circle in that sense. So mm-hmm. it might be why his works don't, don't ever go into such a personal thing or it's, it's very hedonistic and it's not, there's no feelings there necessarily all the time. And is that is that one of his big attractions? Like for you, do you think that in person? I think I think nature of it? I think growing up, and like I said at the beginning, that outsider element, there is something to it. There is something very strange to it, and I can't speak to, I won't, I won't presume to speak to uh, a female audience and how they would interpret it differently. But there are things to that where you do feel like this. There's a very high and flashy impersonal elements of life and it's it's weirdly alluring and you can't like you're saying with jg ballard and crash there's this weird alluring oddness that you shouldn't be drawn to this flame but you just find yourself in the, in the playing the role of moth and you can't mm-hmm. help it and it's like if it's reading a brett easton ellis in american psycho whatever it is you get the very stylistically very similar type of style over substance potentially but there's something about that flashiness that draws you in or whatever it is. And there are people as well that have, I wouldn't say followed in Martin Ames's footsteps, but the parallels either found or presumed to be there could exist. Because I know there's a, a motif around the idea that people like Will Self mm-hmm. and his body of work is kind of uh, 
the, the unofficial progeny that's following in the footsteps of Martin Amis would be Will Self, or I've seen it also said of Zadie Smith, who kind of falls in that similar category as well, where mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. very, for one, kind of London-centric and also style, hyper-maximalist style. Mm-hmm. It's very mm-hmm. much in the style of Martin Amis, and they're kind of like torch-bearing that further forward. And I know they're very hit and miss as well with certain audiences and stuff like that, and it's not just there's critical acclaim there and there's is well received, but there's a chalk and cheese element there that kind of mm-hmm. escaped. And has your, would you say your experience of him has changed over time? Like when you've gone back to maybe reread something like the Rachel papers, do you, do you get the same out of it as you got when no, you were? I, I get out of it now the nostalgia of going, I remember me then reading that. Okay. <laughs> thinking, thinking this is really, this is where it's at. God, this is mm-hmm. cool and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And which I imagine you might do if, if like myself, you if you were ever an introspective teenager, and all of a sudden you're presented with somebody you can fully escape into, and they are flashy and daring, very full of themselves and very sure of themselves, and just they're going to go for it, and they're cleverer than everybody else. Mm-hmm. They, they mm-hmm. don't necessarily. That was the thing as well with like Charles Hyrie in the Rachel Papers. He's not a looker. He, he described himself as being very odd, look, interesting looking. Interesting but looking, he, yeah. but he's not a he's not he's not leading man material in the strictest sense of having that look. Well, but it's it's have, supposedly yeah. semi autobiographical, <laughs> isn't it? So yeah, which, maybe which, a which, bad teeth. <laughs> yeah, which again comes into like the aspect of uh, the pregnant widow, which I think the pregnant widow is a Saul Bellow reference. I think mm-hmm. I was remembering that that title is a nod to. It's either Bellow or Nabokov. I can't remember who used it as an expression uh, of a of a generational thing of like it, it's a it's a pregnant widow, and that is very autobiographical in the sense that you get that I can I can actually picture Martin Amis being that young in a chalet somewhere. There's a pool. There are, there are beautiful people around you. You're all mm-hmm. you all could care less about anything whatsoever because the cool thing is to just roll your own cigarettes. casually read highbrow literature, sneer at everybody else and just, it was very much that type of, he felt like the 80s answer to say Ernest Hemingway in like a movable feast where there's this this thing of, there's there's a lifestyle to it as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's almost almost tenable I would say but then removed because you you can't quite get there because it's kind of a time that's lost and passed and it's it's trying to recapture that kind of writers cliques or whatever the you know whereas you say from from past times yeah. now you mentioned cigarettes and of course unfortunately it was his undoing same, uh same he, as the best friend same as the hitch oh, yeah. exactly it's crazy you know and the, the same pattern. yeah the same disease so yeah. you know we sadly lost martin amos may this year 2023 19th of may 2023 and just you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, he was, of course, knighted, knighted uh, backdated to the day before his yeah. death. Uh, so, of course, even in that way, he receives, although he didn't know it, at least yeah. recognition-wise, the same status as his father, which I guess yeah. is, is something. It's just a shame he didn't know about it. I suppose. Well, he may have known about it, actually. Yeah, because the, the honours list goes out to them beforehand and I'm assuming it's the June honors list so if he died in May he would have probably he would have known so just before we finish Will I would like you to give us I don't know two or three of uh well 
first off, give me off the top of your head your favorite, if you can. If you if you could only take one or possibly two of his works, what would they be? This is my Desert Island Discs moment, is it? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, your favorite. Don't worry about like uh, no, no, recommendations. No, your favorite. No, that is very tricky. I feel the information, even though the, it carries a scandal with it, the information is a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Of Tina's taken to extremes. It's it's fantastic for that element. And then. Probably to go the opposite way away from the fiction would probably be uh, I'm going to forget the complete title and I'm sorry I look over my shoulder the war against cliche probably just because okay. uh, the essays that are there but then also I'd recommend because we didn't touch upon this and it's it's such an odd from my point of view it's such an odd book it's such an odd book is that uh, I I personally missed the original run of all the most of the Martin Amis body of work mm-hmm. so I've had to, I've had to acquire reprints because. I have limited funds and can't afford to go out of it. But uh, Invasion of the Space Invaders is <laughs> his non-fiction book about arcades and gaming. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It has a very strange introduction by Steven Spielberg where he kind of talks weirdly about Martin Amos as somebody he, he seems to pretend to be aware of. But it obviously transpires he has no idea who it is. But uh, for me, it was such, such an unusual book that it's worth just because it's so far removed from Amos doing his stint at the Times Literary Supplement or where a new statement of writing science fiction reviews or reviewing the works of peers. It's, it feels like an assignment that was given to him and it's this very odd mode of somebody who doesn't seem like they're interested in the idea of because electronics kicking in in arcades mm-hmm, in the 80s, mm-hmm. very much like a stylized thing. But mm-hmm. obviously now it feels so, it feels like a, just a time capsule of 8-bit <laughs> cartridge games and things like that. It's just, so if I, can be, if, I can be, if I can be cheeky and go to a third one, that's the third one I'm yeah. putting there, because it's yeah, just so bizarre and out of left field for what you'd view as the body of work that you almost have to spe- take special attention to go there and just bask in it for a second because it's so odd. But I'm guessing none of those three would be your recommendations to start with Martin Amos if you've no. never read him before. To start with Martin Amos, I would start with Night Train for its slimness and because mm-hmm. it's just it's a slightly unusual murder mystery, but it's a, just a good it's a, just a good way into his style mm-hmm. to see if you like it. And it's almost of a genre where the hyper stylized nature isn't there necessarily. It feels a bit more restrained in some sense. But then out of that the you kind of have to go towards the bigger books, I think, to get the full, the next flavor. And I, w- I probably would say Money would be a very good one. It's kind of loosely put into a category of a trilogy with uh, London Fields and the information, but that's a, that's just a very loose, that, there's, n- there's nothing linking them as a trilogy per se. Yeah. But uh, it would probably be Money. And then, to, to my shame, I've, there are a couple of books I've not actually acquired yet or read yet. So my own time with Martin hasn't finished, even though he's now passed. So I've still, I still feel like I, I almost don't want to read those because that would that would put some finality to the to yeah, it. Yeah, I and understand I've, that. I've done everything, so if I leave them there as a lingering thing to get around to, my journey with Martin won't be finished. So even though even rereads, there'll there'll be some strange feeling to have, which would be, oh, I've I've read the last word now. Yeah, and I'm up to date, and I feel like that would be something I almost don't want to do. So 
personally, I may I, I can't recommend Inside Story because I haven't read it, and I may never read it. <laughs> Even though I love Martha Amos, I may just never read it because because it's so autobiographical and it happened at the end of his life. It feels like I'd be in some space that would be very odd as a reader. So yeah, <laughs> that might be different for other people who a deceased read, writer might have been dead a very long time. So you've got no choice but to mm, leave some, mm. explore some avenues, but it feels, everything feels very fresh at the moment still. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who's got like a celebrity thing where it's like, when you see people who were back in the day screaming and passing out because of the Beatles or whatever it might be, I don't have that level of fandom. But I did feel very personally sad to think like, oh, it's I had things to look forward to, and now there's this life got in the life got in the way a little bit and made it a bit sad. There might be some things still to come out though. I mean, a lot of yeah. writers do leave things in their papers lying around, and there may have yeah. been something sitting in a publishing house waiting to come out. So, you I know, can't imagine. I also can't imagine that posthumously there's not going to be the letters or diaries. Letters, I can't, exactly, I yeah. can't, I, so I can't picture it being the end of the publication journey for the output of Martin Harris book. I do wonder when we're going to get to that stage where it's not going to be author's letters anymore. It's going to be no, author's emails. Or WhatsApp what's <laughs> <that> messages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the complete Snapchats or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, of course, they disappear, I think. Someone told yeah. me. I don't really know it, but I, that I, wouldn't I be much good. Either. So, yeah. Well, Will, thank you so much. It was really great fun. Thank you really thank ever you so much me. for coming on and, and talking about uh, Martin Amos. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Will ever so much for joining me for that very interesting chat, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please do check out his YouTube channel. All relevant links and things will be in the description below. Thanks again for joining us. Do take care, everybody. Until next time, all the best. Bye-bye.